You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to another episode of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am super honored today to be joined by Rear Admiral Denise Hinton. Uh, As Deputy Surgeon General, Rear Admiral Denise Hinton advises and supports the U.S. Surgeon General regarding operations of the U.S. Public Health Services Commission Corps and in communicating the best available scientific information to advance the health of the nation. From July 2017 to October 2021, Rear Admiral Hinton served as Chief Scientist at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. She provided strategic leadership, coordination, and expertise to support scientific excellence, innovation, and capacity to achieve FDA's public health mission. Rear Admiral Hinton's responsibilities encompassed interdisciplinary toxicology research, health informatics, technology transfer, scientific training and education, laboratory safety, as well as leadership, coordination, and oversight for FDA's national and global health security, counterterrorism, and emerging threats portfolios. Before becoming chief scientist, Rear Admiral Hinton held various leadership positions within the FDA, including Deputy Director of the Office of Medical Policy in FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. Prior to joining the U.S. PHS, Commission Corps Rear Admiral Hinton served in the U.S. Air Force as a nurse officer. She earned her Bachelor's of Science in Nursing from Florida State University and her Master's of Science from Boston University. Rear Admiral Hinton, is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. She has also received numerous awards for her contributions to science and public health, including a USPHS Meritorious Service Medal. She is the recipient of the Department of Health and Human Services Award for Excellence in Management for making significant and enduring contributions to FDA's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. She also earned an FDA Commissioner's Special Citation, one of the highest honors bestowed by the FDA. Additionally, Rear Admiral Hinton was recognized by the Maryland governor with a governor's citation for efforts in combating the opioid epidemic. Rear Admiral Hinton is a proud mother of two children, Dominic and Derek Hinton. Thank you for joining me today at Rear Admiral Hinton. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's my honor and pleasure to be able to speak with you today. Thank you. Uh, I've had the, uh, I I had the great fortune of actually meeting you last year where I hooked you for the podcast. (laughs) And I greatly appreciate we finally have an opportunity to meet again and actually do this recording. Um, I'll start right from the beginning of what interested you and 
drew you to the profession of nursing? Thank you for that question. I know that's one that we get asked quite often. Um, and I would say it's, it, it's, it's, it's broad in the sense of there were, uh, wasn't one particular thing. It was many things and, and people. Um, and I think it's uh, life experiences um, and exposure. And I will just say um, early on when I was in high school, uh, and I'll say specifically where at Satellite High School in Satellite um, Beach, Florida, they had a, um, I would say a shadow program. Um, so I would say early on in that program, um, it was one of those things where you had the opportunity to shadow different professions. And, um, one of my areas of interest at the time was to potentially pursue a career as a pediatrician. Um, oh, wow. so I wanted to shadow a pediatrician for the day. Um, however, uh, whatever happened along the way, the pediatrician wasn't available. So I, um, they asked if I was willing to shadow a nurse at Holmes Regional Medical Center um, there in Melbourne, Florida. So I said, okay, sure, we'll do. So, and, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I would say upon doing so, um, uh, one of the things was the, the nurse that I shadowed that day could not have been the most compassionate, impressive person that I probably ran into at that time in my life in the sense of uh, just the way that she just commanded her space and her mm. room, um, but in a very, um, I would say, uh, respectful manner. Like I was most impressed with the way, one, that she took me in for the day, but also um, was highly encouraging, but in the sense of, you know, shadowing her, um, she seemed to command this respect um, and have earned the respect from those that she worked with, um, whether it was support staff, actual staff or nursing colleagues, you know, the physicians um, or the patients in which she or the in their um, families in which she was providing care for. Um, and she was able to just kind of, you know, transition um, from one space to another, but in such a just, I think, a profoundly impressive but impressionable way. And, you know, I think even in watching her engage and interact with, one, the patients, but also their um, loved ones, but then also the providers, it was just in such a manner that it, it, it was it was just um, something that really um, just resonated with me and just left me with, oh, wow, you know, I love people. I love caring for people. I like being able to provide for people, but I also like helping people and engaging with people. And then she showed me a way in which you could do that from um, and, and from the position and where you serve. Um, and that encouraged me to essentially transition from pursuing the um, you know uh, a career in as a pediatrician into pursuing one as a nurse. Um, and I think most people are like surprised by that. They're like, you don't want to be a physician. I'm like, no, I want to be a nurse. And I am, I am proud of it. And I am proud of her. And then all the, the nurses that I, you know, I have served with along the way. That's amazing. It, it, it kind of goes to show that, you know, when we say uh, all nurses are leaders, regardless at what level they are, whether they are they are at the bedside, whether they're management, whether they have an official role, the fact that she had command of her space 
and really led the workflow and the care that was happening. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about nursing leadership. That's what nursing leadership is, right? Um, so, so it's amazing. And I'm, and I'm thankful for her because now we have you in the profession. So, so that's amazing. So you never know who you're going to be, uh, who's going to be with you that one day will be the next uh, deputy surgeon general. And I'm going to throw this question at you later, but how do we get a nurse to be a surgeon general? But that's a, that's a whole nother question. All right. Um, so how did you decide how, so once, once you decide you're going to become a nurse, um, did you, did you, uh, just right away knew like, I'm going to go to the university and apply for a program or, uh, how did that work out for you? Yeah. So uh, I think following that, I just, I, I looked into it further. Um, I did have folks within my family, um, that were like nurses assistants or aides mm. and the like, um, but no full nurses. My dad, um, who is retired Air Force, retired military, we live near Patrick Air Force Base, Florida. So he had some um, friends from the service in which he worked with, in which he set up for me to have shadowing opportunities with them as well. Fantastic. Um, so I could see what it was like in even a military setting. Um, and um, so I got to go shadow the nurses there. And that was in uh, one in the surgery unit. So that was, you know, really eye opening. And of course, you got to see it from a different setting. When I was at home as regional medical center, that was like strictly civilian population, right? right. Um, diverse and the like. And then you go to this military base. And then, you know, that comes with you know, command and control, organizational structure and the like. Um, so, and got to see how um, these nurses function there. And um, these were, we had staff nurse, but also charge nurse. So we got to see folks in their various roles there. And again, well-respected, you know, commanded their space, commanded the room and um, really were able to, um, I would say, um, lead you know, from the, the position um, um, in which they sit, but also based off their skill set and knowledge. Um, and they were just well-respected for it. So that, you know, also solidified what I wanted to do. And I just, you know, asked uh, around like about the programs in which they graduated from and then further researched um, and actually was looking to choose between or two rival schools, I would say there, <laughs> Florida, which is um, University of Florida and Florida State. And I chose Florida State. Wow, amazing. Um, so once you graduated, um, is that when you, uh, or you're in the university, did you did you go through like an ROTC program or you decide to join the Air Force at some other point? No, I did not go through an ROTC program. I decided that actually my final year um, at the um, School of Nursing, it's now College of Nursing, but School of Nursing then. Um, and uh, that was um, one, two, that... Uh, very much proud and excited um, to be able to continue to serve. Um, I would say within the Florida State um, now um, College of Nursing, they provided you as well with many opportunities, of course, as you know, some of the other um, nursing schools as well, just so you could see where people serve, like research, academia, military, military science, and um, the like. So um, once we, you know, had some of those opportunities to one, work in the different settings, but also have exposure um, mm. to the different um, um, chosen, I would say, specialties. Um, 
once the Air Force recruiters came in and I spoke with them, um, I always knew that I had a desire to serve in uniform. Um, it's pretty much what I've known my whole life. My dad was in the service um, for 26 years oh, wow. before he retired. So at that point, it was my whole life. So um, that was my community. That was my world, you know, yeah. that, the military community, the military setting. Um, so I wanted to be able to continue one to serve my country, but also to be able to to serve others through service, both um, I would say from the the uniformed or military side of the, the house, but also um, from the clinical care. Wow, amazing. Um, so how was your and, and first of all, thank you for your service in the in the US Air Force. Um, um, I know it's a little, it's one of the branches that's less challenging. I'm just kidding. I'm just, kidding. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but um, I, I'm just one when, when I was stationed overseas, I we used to make it a point to have to run to the Air Force bases because they had the best chow halls. Uh, so um, uh, I just, will just say a, Air Force, they take pretty good care of their people. So. They take very good care of their people. I, and I was I've always been I, I was in the Navy. So I was, I was either on uh, in in barracks or a ship or most of my career I was with the marine side of the house mm-hmm. uh, so a little bit of a rougher uh, situation uh, mm-hmm. serving but but yeah we love the air force bases because they have <laughs> some of the best uh, best facilities uh, regardless of where you are so I'm appreciative of that mm-hmm. <clears throat> so how was your experience in the air force it was amazing um uh, I had, I would say, I was very fortunate to be able to work with some truly outstanding people. I um, actually, my first base was Eglin Air Force Base, um, right there in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Um, so after I attended MEMSO, which was in Texas, and then um, transferred to my first base um, was um, at um, um, Eglin Air Force Base there in Fort Walton Beach, Florida just worked with, it was in an internship program there. Um, and, uh, the group of folks that, you know, were also in that same program with me, uh, we all just got along well, we meshed well, we supported one another. Um, and then, so as we made our rotations through, I would say, um, some of the different specialties I had decided upon, um, you know, OBGYN, you know, I loved, you know, of course, didn't become a pediatrician, but I still loved working with moms and babies and, right. uh, and uh, teaching and supporting. So um, that was the, the, I would say the specialty in which I chose in the end, but I would say the training in which you get um, in the Air Force. And, you know, I can, you know, I would say, I know you get that high level type training in the other services as well, but I would say that, you know, within the Air Force, you truly, truly um, just gain a real sense of service. Mm. Um, it's it's taught to everyone, like it's right. selfless service. It's like, you know, when they say um, service before self, that is inbred from, you know, the time you, um, you know, you, you step into the uniform. Um, and then whether that's part of your being as a whole, you certainly learn that when you're um, in one of the military services. And I would say upon my commissioning to the United States Air Force, that's what I learned. And that's what I found. And uh, I would say that within um, my service in the Air Force, which was for eight years, 
it's where I really learned, you know, how to administer healthcare services, supervise, delegate, and then evaluate like clinical actions to both the civilian and military personnel. So, yeah. you know, that you you learn this, whether it's in peacetime, wartime on or on humanitarian missions. So I think uh it was my experience uh in the Air Force that I was able to see and just really experience the true diversity of a nursing degree. Yeah. Um, it was also that experience that pushed me to pursue, you know, advanced education just put me on my path to the current role. I would say the operational, the staff, the leadership experience as a nurse in the Air Force set the foundation um, and uh, enabled me to be an advocate for nurses and public health service me uh, members. And uh, so I, um, when I had joined the Air Force, my plan was to you know, see the world. <laughs> and, oh, but that, you know, that didn't quite happen. I think I got more to do more of that when my dad was in for 26 years than I did myself. I, you know, you're able to kind of pick and choose your first, you know, um, basis and prioritize them. But in the end, they choose where you would be best served and where they need you. Exactly. Um, so that ended up being, um, you know, of course, Eglin Air Force Base, Florida. So I went from literally well it, we lived in indian harbor beach which was in you know the, the space coast so literally florida you know <laughs> turning <laughs> east coast to you know the, the pretty much on the panhandle so i went to eglin air force base but um i was just proud to be able to to serve in uniform so and to be able to uh to provide that service and get that training that's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, and that happens sometimes. Like people end up, I, I had actually a, a good friend of mine who was from San Diego, served uh, 10 years in San Diego in the Navy. Yeah. Uh, and that's what she did. Uh, so, but, but yeah, but we have uh, bases and needs all over the world. And it is the needs of the military that dictate where you end up. Comes, yeah, that comes first because I literally went from Eglin Air Force Base and then my next base was um Andrews Air Force Base and, oh, okay you know in the you know of course the the DC um area and then yeah. from there is where I um had also learned about the public health service and and, and then did an inter service transfer from the um Air Force to the um public health service one I wanted to continue to serve in uniform but it was at that time that I had to decide on a making a transition from uh, the Air Force um, to, you know, uh, you know, another setting as by then after that I had when I went into the service, I was single. Um, and then after a period of time, of course, I was married and then two kids um, yeah. and had to also consider my spouse and my family and, and, and you know, what was important for us moving forward. Yeah. And, um, for my spouse that wasn't traveling um, or getting PCS every three years because he was a civilian. Yeah. Um, uh, it's uh, it's really interesting. I, actually, I was going to ask you how you made that transition. And for our listeners, um, the United States Public Health Services is part of the, the uniform services. Yes. So you can transfer from the armed part of the two to. to uh, um, the U.S. Public Health Services and continue the uniform services piece. So oh, that's an, okay. a lot of people do that. I've heard many people uh, that make that transition. Yes. Um, yeah, I would say that the you know the the 
Public Health Service Commission Corps is one of those, I would say, world's best kept secrets that we would love yeah. to be a secret, right? It is, um, you know, the mission of the Public Health Service is to protect, promote, and advance the health and safety of our nation. And we, you know, are able to do that um, in a variety of ways. And um, in doing so, um, it's, you know, we were able to do so pretty much like through the rapid and effective response to public health needs. And this includes deploying to deliver um, aid during public health emergencies, national disasters, and any, any other of the presidential declarations. And um, you really learn this, through, you know, you do it through leadership and excellence in public health practices and um, advancement in public health science. Like we have 11 professional categories as a whole, which, you know, includes medical, dental, like, you know, pharmacy, scientists, we have engineers, therapists, veterinarians, dietitians, environmental health officers, and we have um, health science services officers um, that include behavioral health professions. Um, And of course, Top one is the nursing category. <laughs> so you could serve all over the world and then at different agencies, such as the Food and Drug Administration, Department of Homeland Security, Federal Bureau of Prisons, Indian Health Service, where we serve our underserved wholly, the Coast Guard, you know, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and, and also the United States, even Department of Agriculture and um, so many more, even um, Department of um, Homeland Security and Department, I mean, the, the Defense Health Agency. We're all yeah. over. So it's just, you know, we're at 6,000, it's, it's about 6,000 members, um, all commissioned. We don't have an enlisted force, but you know, very strong service where you too can use your skill sets and also um, have a lot of career growth and opportunity. So Anyone listening, if they're interested in the United States Public Health Service, we welcome them to go online and, and join our, our wonderful service. Lots of opportunities there across the world. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's one of the things a lot of people didn't have who I've spoken to don't realize is you are an inter, you are international. Like you 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 are all over the world um responding to various things. Uh, like COVID being a very, you know, most recent example, probably for me anyway. Yes. Uh, I'm sure you have other stuff on your plate that you're addressing. Um, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I'll have, a, I, I do have a link to the U.S. Public Health Services on the website for anybody listening. Um, but uh, if you, you can just Google it and say, how do I get in? Um, <laughs> uh, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you'll find, I'll, you'll find a way. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great way to, uh, to, to serve and, and, uh, and you guys do have a lot of opportunities for various roles that may don't necessarily exist on the civilian side uh, and gives people a very unique skill set. So thank you for that. Um, And thank you so far. I mean, thank you for your service in the U.S. public health services. Uh, I do want to transition a little bit to your particular role as the deputy uh, surgeon general. Um, What does your role um, entail as far as your roles, responsibilities. Gosh, um, it, it's it's a busy time. Right? I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. So one of that is that I'm wholly supportive and support um, the the Surgeon General, our U.S. Surgeon General, Vice Admiral um, Vivek Murthy. Um, and um, within that, we also have Assistant Secretary of Health, 
Emmer Levine. Uh, and, and of course, in just, um, you know, just to share with everyone here, um, you know, we, we work and operate the um, request of our, the Secretary of Health and Human Services as well, um, which um, it's Javier Becerra at the time. So, and one of those things is that, you know, um, as the Deputy Surgeon General, I advise the Assistant Secretary for Health and the Surgeon General um, and overseeing the operational and management of the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. Um, so, it, which is makes up about um, 6,000 officers. So on any given day. Not a small so, task. No, it's it's exciting because like I said, we just do it in a variety of ways. Um, um, and I think I already mentioned that like we, uh, we were uniformed and we have eight uniformed services. Um, however, you know, we are the only uniform service in the world dedicated to public health. Yeah. So we're available to the president and the HHS secretary just to be able to rapidly respond to public health crises across the world. And, and again, we're the only uniform service comprised solely of officers. Yeah. Um, now I have a question for you. Um, <clears throat> so again, COVID, COVID being the, my my latest experience with uh, with the public health issue. What what did you you specifically? I'm not talking about U.S. public health services. This is more of more your opinion. Um, how do you think, or what what do you know now? What have you learned now, uh, based on your experience over the last several years? that would better prepare us in responding to something like COVID-19? Well, that's a little question. No, but it's uh, important. No, no, I mean, I mean, it's an experience. I mean, it's an experience, but I don't think anybody would have been like, what do we, like, I don't like, I don't know if there, there is a realistic way for us to plan for a COVID-19 when it first happened. I'm like, this can't be happening. This is, massive this is huge and yeah. right on the right off the beginning i'm like this is going to overwhelm the entire system so and i'm sure there was a lot of learnings that happened because of it right a lot of trial and errors happened um so like yeah. from that's you personally like question yeah no thank you for that and i think that's a great question and one because you know we, we hear people say every day and we're going to see this and we're going to hear this said probably for decades to come that it was um, unprecedented and it, you know, depended our, the way we live, you know, how we lived and how we did things for, you know, then, but it still is, right? Right. So I think lessons learned. And remember when COVID started, I was sitting in a different seat. I was, you know, at the, the FDA. Right. Um, and then since then um, in um, uh, 2021, um, transition over to the, the role of the deputy surgeon general, um, so or being able to see things and from different lenses, but also getting more of a bird's eye view too on how these things go. Right. But in my personal opinion, uh, what lessons learned, what we can do better is taking our lessons learned to do better, right? right. And forgetting that. And mm. I say those key points. I would say one of the 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 huge points later early on was one just kind of getting um, understanding what was happening internationally right. to be able to, to apply their lessons learned to what we could potentially do here nationally. Right. 
And um, the whole thing is that it just kind of took effect so quickly. And it was something that we hadn't been through. Um, I would say many of the folks within, um, you know, um, you know, I would say in this lifetime, right. In, right. in our lifetime. So it was the, I think the communication was the biggest thing. And I can tell you that it, you know, in learning early on that, yes, you want to be able to apply the science um, to inform policy, to be able to implement strategies. Mm-hmm. But the most important of them is the communication and the coordination of that early on. So that way we are able to um, share information as early as possible um, and then to inform uh, and then work together and putting collective strategies in place um, and then knowing that they're going to be evergreen. And then the communication, you know, lesson learned is early on within the messaging, being able to say, that as the science evolves and perhaps this virus evolves, you know, our mitigation strategies and our communication about the science and the mitigation strategies and anything that we need to put in play for our lay public, as well as our um, government officials and any of our community leaders and the like will change as well. Yeah, um, because um, I think some things kind of got lost in messaging along the way as when we were, and I would say we collectively as a whole, I would say in our nation, you know, and folks involved in that, we would communicate things, but for the lay public, like we're scientists, like as scientists, or maybe, you know, official epidemiologists or whomever it was, you might understand that science evolves. And as you learn, yeah. you know, the messaging and um, strategies will evolve with it. But when we're communicating to the public and not saying and being transparent about that um, front unintentionally too, I'd right. say, um, it, it, it did have some impacts because as we know, folks early on said, oh my gosh, oh, she said we didn't have to wear masks. Now we have to wear masks. Then you said gloves, no gloves. Then, you know, and it was like, hey, as we learned, you know, how virulent this is in the right. Um, and then, you know, that with these mutations and, you know, um, and the, the more of the protections that we need to put in place, we're informing you. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then backing it up in as close to layman's terms as possible. And, you know, here's the why, you know, here's what it was then, but here's, here's what we're telling you now. And, 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 and here's the information we on, have on hand that we believe will best protect you um, and our community, our nation, our globe, if we do these things and that we have to do them collectively together to be able to either catch up or get ahead of it. Right. Um, so I think that's a huge lesson learned. And I believe collectively as a whole, we learned that. And I think yeah. the other piece was over the course of time. I mean, it, it was impressive how, um, you know, the, you know, the U.S. government sector, DOD, um, academia, industry, um, everyone came together to be able to head this off um, and to be able to, you know, um, be informed and um, put work and um, things in place early on. Um, I think continuing to do that is super important too, then pass the 
you know, the public health emergency and the crisis, because we can learn that with other, um, you know, with, um, uh, you know, I would say with other actions, we're able to, you know, get a vaccine um, in place that helped, you know, prevent um, more death than, than necessary. And I think it was important, again, it was the communication um, right. to help people understand that, it, you know, it's a prevent, pre- preventative measure. Um, and it's also a kind of a treatment measure, but it wasn't something that was going to prevent you from getting COVID. It was something that was put in place to prevent, you know, um, increased um, illness or, you know, um, and help people to um, lessen the incidence of folks dying um, from COVID or being hospitalized and the like. So we, we got it, we, we got it right later on, but it took some time to get there. But I think it was important to help you know, the, the, the nation understand that we are being as transparent as possible and communicating to you as much as possible in real time. Please understand that the messaging will change, um, but also us backing it up, um, right. you know, um, with the science and with the data. Um, and, and it's, yeah. And it's challenging. Uh, I don't, I did not envy the role of anybody that had to go to the public uh, and had to give various messages throughout the process because I know even from from the from my end when I was looking at how people were reacting or you know I'm in LA County so um, like we did masks everywhere and everybody stay home orders mm-hmm. and all this stuff and we still saw people like without masks I'm like how do you like we can't, when you can't get a hundred percent compliance, you're right. not going to be able to get to, we need to get rid of this because there's still people um, that are going to be non-compliant for various recent yeah. reasons. Yeah. And somehow we have to, uh, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to ask you this question, but somehow we need to get the politics and science exactly. separate. Yeah. Um, so this, so the science can stand on its own without being politicized with but various opinions that are not necessarily based on anything or any facts uh, of the matter. Um, The science has to stand on its own. And and I think that that's where a lot of the sort of the frustrations and, and lack of compliance to what was really needed to save lives just somehow for whatever reason didn't happen. I Um, agree with you, but I can assure you that, like in watching all these folks come together, you know, from um, the regulators, I would say like at FDA and then in working with um, the U.S. government, whether that be DOD, academia, the researchers, and I would say our HHS components, CDC, NIH, you know, and working, I, the passion that went into that, um, watching people truly work I mean, you know, 20 hours a day just to make sure that, you know, they weren't missing a beat. It was, it was incredibly, um, it was, I mean, it was, uh, it, it was impressive, but um, it, everybody, I would say from sitting in my seat and looking um, back, but also knowing at the time that we were very much tied to wanting um, the information to be scientifically sound and informing our decisions based off 
science, period. Right. And these um, researchers, you know, regulators, you know, folks from academia, industry and the like, did their due diligence in ensuring right. that information that was passed on for decision-making was grounded in science. So uh-huh. um, our, you know, so I, my hats off, you know, to, you know, all you know, the colleagues and, and you know, my, you know, fellow, um, um, I would say professionals and paraprofessionals that worked at the HHS agencies and in academia and industry and the like um, to do their due diligence in, in, in supporting uh, and making sure things were grounded in science. Yeah. I, for one, am grateful for the work that happened because uh, I it got it got it got real for a moment there, mm-hmm. um, and then the vaccine started coming out actually really quickly because I was my wife initially had talked to me, I'm like it's going to take years to get vaccines out, and like a year later there was vaccines out. I was like, wow, mm-hmm. that's that's fast. Yeah, yeah. and it's uh, like, so amazing. It usually what, takes ten years to for something right. Like Exactly. But there was work already done on this previously. Yeah. So they took the lessons learned from that and all came together to work together. So it wasn't, you know, like one of these incremental processes. It was like, uh, nope, <laughs> we, we need to address this in real time for the whole of the nation and really, yeah. you know, for the um, the whole of the world to get this right. Yeah. So, you know, those lessons learned and um, that work was critically important. And um I, I'm I'm proud of what we all accomplished together, and I'm proud that we have these vaccines that are in place to protect people. So I yeah. do hope that you know um, you know whether you are you know you know um, you've made the decision to get your vaccine or not. I, I'm hoping for those um, that they do use the science and make sure that they work to understand it from and get the information from you know, trusted sources and, um, and, and, and get, you know, fact-checked and understand that these vaccines are put in place to protect you, um, and to protect those around you as well. Um, so I, I certainly am up on my boosters and will continue to be in and, and totally support those and, um, support folks getting in. It's, it's up to, um, the individual to make the decision, but uh, I, I totally believe that it's grounded in science, and you know, it's it the benefit certainly outweighs the risk for most. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I am too, and so is my family. We're like first in line for anything that came out. So, um, so grateful for that. Um, <clears throat> even though I have a, I have the flu right now, as as we're speaking over Zoom, uh, I did get my flu shot for the record. <laughs> But actually, I put it on. I put it on social media, and somebody said, "Oh, it doesn't work." I'm like, "It's not a hundred percent." I got it back in like October, so it's <laughs> right. starting to like wean off at this point. That's why we get annual boosters. So absolutely, and I think it's up for us for like um, you know us as clinicians, <laughs> nurses, and supporters to inf- let help people understand that. Right? It doesn't mean that you may never get it, but imagine maybe if you did get your flu shot. How much, I know, like how much worse may may I, may, yeah. may yeah. I be? I might be off if I hadn't gotten it because now my body is, uh, you know, somewhat ready for it. Yeah, I say most most have insurance, right? So they 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 yes. pay insurance bill. So if something were to happen, they're covered. Yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> there's your. Oh, <laughs> um. Mm-hmm. So um, I do have you know I, I some of the work that 
some of the talks of, I, I cover on the podcast uh, are also policy rate related. Um, mm-hmm. So how did, from a policy perspective, um, did the uh, did the public health services change any policies related to how communication happens, whether it's locally, internationally, nationally? Uh, did any policies change regarding some of these, or were they already in place and you just um, utilize them to the max during during COVID? A lot of them were in place. I, you know, just, I think going through the experience and lessons learned and, you know, I can just speak from, you know, like maybe the commission core or, or uniform services specifically is one to be able to expedite being able to work together to support one another in our nation, like kind of what, what, you know, memorandums of agreement or whatever need to be in place and you know um, for the protection of our service members and providing the care together at the different communities or um um you know i would say the vaccine or testing sites and the like um also for if we're going to deploy folks overseas um what was needed to be able to expeditiously do so so you know a lot of the some of the internal um policies um one to um, be able to expeditiously expeditiously move folks, but in order for us to all work together, but also to protect um, our officers that were providing care to the communities. Great, great, thank you. From from a uh, again going back to the uh, public health community, um, do you have um, or can you share? Like FBI has the like the top ten most wanted. Do you guys have like a top ten? most things that you guys are like on your hot topics of what you're looking at uh does it work like that like your prioritization of what's going on in the world that's uh something nothing top secret but uh things that are like you know like we should be from a public perspective know that like the public health services has their eye on and monitoring and so on Uh, because public health services like goes all over i mean it's it's such a broad thing, right? So, right. Um, yeah, the public health service component, it's, you know, it's like it's broad, right? And people serve in various roles, as I said, from um, like depending on which organization that you're working in or with, you know, whether it be from Bureau of Prisons, Indian Health Service, Center right. for Disease Control, Food and Drug Administration, et cetera, et cetera. But um, there are different priorities as a whole that you might work on depending on where you are, right? Yeah. Food and Drug Administration, you know, you're looking at that mission versus the CDC's mission where NIH is, where, but it's all collaborative and one feeds them on top of the other. There's right. priorities that come, you know, from, you know, the White House to the Secretary and they all cascade up and down. Our, you know, our priorities for the Public Health Service um, you know, as a whole, um, you know, our focus is, you know, wholly on the infrastructure um, of our service and being able to be coordinated and organized to be able to support um, folks across the globe. Um, and then also our officer well-being um, and then, you know, readiness and deployment. We want to make sure that we're always ready for anything that might be coming down the pike and being able to deploy to support. So, um, you know, so those are a number of, um, I would say, our, our, you know, our priorities that are high level. But then when it comes down to the details, how do you go about, you know, implementing that? But you know, we recognize, you know, as a whole, and of course, if you're, you know, you're 
um, if you, you know, you've, I'm sure you've been tracking one that the priorities of our, um, our Surgeon General is um, essentially looking at the, you know, the mental health and well-being in the workplace. And so that's also what we're doing and wholly focused on for the whole of our service. Um, and, um, and then for the Surgeon General for that nation's doc hat, you know, there are nations right. making sure that, you know, I would say that the five essentials for workplace and mental health and well-being are implemented, shared, but also implemented externally. And it applies to almost like to really to any setting, but it's something that we're, we're wholly focused on internally and hope that folks are externally as well, because, um, people matter, people first, you need people to be able to do the research, put protections in place and to be able to continue to serve. So, you know, um, a, a top priority is addressing the health, the mental health and well-being. Great, thank you. We recognize, uh, sorry, no, it's gonna say we recognize like there's been a nursing shortage, right? And oh yeah, absolutely. Across the, the way, there's shortages in the military, shortages in the uniform services as a whole, but in our healthcare um, setting, you know, before COVID, but since COVID, my gosh, it's, you know, it's incremental. So um, I think that, you know, one, the, the pandemic did highlight um, the relationship between work and well-being. And then yeah. we showed that just in 2021, what 70%, what was it? 76%, you know, plus or minus um, of the workers re reported that um, I think at least one symptom of mental, you know, health conditions, you know, and that's, that was a 17% increase, um, you know, just from the preceding two years. You know, we know that from the data that 81% yeah. of the workers reported, you know, they will be looking for workplaces that support mental health in the future. And um, so we want to be wholly focused on that. So um, I'll choose say for that, that um, we want to make sure that we continue to address this, but also make sure that we figure out ways collectively to work together to address burnout. What can we, what practices can we put in place that are within our controls? We as nursing leaders, we as executives, policymakers and the like can use. So I do like to highlight um, like the Surgeon General's um, framework and the advisory highlights, which, you know, we, we also honor and go by as well. And that's the, the um, five essentials uh, for workers and organizations and businesses of every size. And that's just to help develop policies and practices that support the mental health and well-being of workers. I'm yeah. just going to tell you the five essentials. And then if you want to send folks the link, they'll have that. But Oh, yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, the focus is on protection from harm, connection and community, work-life harmony, mattering at work, and of course, opportunities for growth, which is very important to us in the nursing field. We want to grow leaders. We need folks at the bedside, but we also need to grow leaders that serve in executive roles or charge nurse or in policy, you know, um, you know, work on the Hill, you know, to make sure we get the legislative fixes in place to all, and be able to implore all these things, especially protection from harm from wherever we work and from whomever we're working with. That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing those. And it's true. I mean, I think those, um, those those ideas are not are not new, but but as you mentioned, COVID nineteen really emphasized their importance, and it's unfortunate that I'm already seeing some institutions go back to their same practices as if 
you know, everything's back to normal. Um, and um, not from like a masking perspective or anything like that, but how they're staffing, how they're providing benefits uh, to their to their staff and and nurses and and so on. So I agree. I think we need more nurses in leadership roles and in policy and politics and um, to actually integrate some of those changes. Um, and then to your point, you just mentioned, you know, that, you know, now you know, that people are shifting back to what once was yeah. it's going back to what are our lessons learned? Exactly. I mean, I mean, yeah, that was your, that was your key point is like, don't forget the lessons that we've learned. But uh, like I said, uh, and this is my opinion, you don't have to comment on this, but because we do have a healthcare system that is profit driven, uh, whether you're a nonprofit or for profit, we're a profit driven healthcare system. And it's unfortunate um, that, you know, this ends up being at the end of the day, it's that they, they look at the dollars and um so um hopefully we'll wrap our heads around this sooner than later um because other countries are getting it right and i think we're, we're way behind and then we can again you know we can learn from others and learn from ourselves you know and actually remember it is people first right we right. really have to read it can't be profit first how are you gonna make profit without the people exactly on either side exactly. of the coin so i think you know you know really hearing those voices and learning how we can, you know, I know, like if you're working in a clinical setting, you're not going to maybe have that option to like telework, you know, work from home, but, you know, maybe from those that have worked at the bedside for so long, for a while, if, if you see that they're experiencing burnout with that, is there an opportunity for them to receive training and maybe shift to telehealth or health right. communication while, you know, or, you know, or, you know, bringing on more folks to help staff. Yeah, so um, like yeah. some kind of rotation or just change the environment a bit and just yeah. providing me just being more supportive of uh, some of the uh, some of the needs, I think, or just being aware of it. Some 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 organizations really said, OK, we're changing, but I can see other organizations are still losing people because they just haven't. They went back to normal. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because I think using the voice and the experiences from your people, your staff, and um, is important. So I, I think it's important like to survey them or, you know, listen to them and say what worked well and what didn't and what can we do yeah. to ensure that we remain fully staffed to be able to provide the care we're here to provide. But how can we best do that? And, you know, where you, you know, are essentially benefiting and growing and feeling like, you know, that you, one, there's no do harm to you mentally, emotionally, um, within that people are exhausted. Let's learn how yeah. we can help them be less exhausted and feel supported. And it, we, and, and then achieve some type of balance. And we can do that by not just kind of a top down approach. And here's what we think. And now let's put policy in place to do let's, in, you know, I think if we involve them, uh, you know, or the staff or the folks that, you know, um, truly want their voices to be heard and their input, um, and, and as um, consider their input to help inform our our actions, that would go a long way. because it's not going to be a one size fits all, right? For yeah. every organization or um, you know uh, or hospital or clinical setting, you know, talk to your yeah. people, listen to them. You know, yeah, thank you for important. that. Um, I I I, I do want to go back to to this one one question I brought up in the beginning, and this is from from a place of complete ignorance that I'm asking you this. Um, I've seen 
um, nurses as deputy surgeon generals become the interim surgeon general while there's a vacancy. I haven't seen one as the surgeon general. Is that a possibility? And if so, how does how does somebody actually get to that role if you are a registered nurse? Oh, well, I would say the thank you for that question. We have had two interim um, surgeon generals. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, I think, believe one of of late was uh, for Admiral Susan Ersagan. Before that was um, Admiral Sylvia Trentadam. Um, and, uh, and then we had you know, at Vice Admiral Ramona <laughs> at one time, who actually is a nurse, but is, a, is also a physician. Right. right. So it's it, that's cheating. That's cheating. That is cheating, right? <laughs> but I, I think wholly the the uh, the role, and I believe the job description does <laughs> um, have a like medical officer component. But never say never. I believe that right. someday um, we will have a, a nurse that certainly will have the opportunity to serve fully as a surgeon general. I appreciate that. Um, thank you. I, position, I, so that's up to those. Uh, you know, at the top. I think I think some policymakers <laughs> need to look at the wording. Uh, that's Excellent. all I'm saying. Uh, Thank so. You. Thank you for that. Um, uh, but yeah, but uh, that was like, that was a problem. Like, how is it that we have interim surgeon generals as, as as uh, as nurses, but then they place a physician? But yeah. I I didn't know the wording, and I had I hadn't looked it up, so I had to ask. Yeah, no holy yet, usually, because I prefer um, a physician or medical officer. Mm -hmm. I want to be cognizant of our time, and I know uh, I'm, I'm taking up more than I asked, more time than I asked for. Uh, I want to uh, leave you with the last words. Anything else you'd like to share um, as we wrap this up? One, I want to thank you um, for your leadership, and I'm going to say in partnership in ensuring that the voices of our nurses are heard. Um, you know, you're you're really trying to, uh, you know, working to highlight um, and provide the spotlight for uh, nurses in leadership positions. Um, and but I, I always say to everyone, you're a leader from wherever you sit. Right. Um, so whether you're staff level or in management or an executive or, you know, in, in our instructor or the like, you lead. Um, so I think you always have to look at, you know, your role and your position um, in that way, in that light. People are always watching. Uh, so, you know, you always want to um, put your best foot forward. Um, in at, when I think most of us that take on that role as a nurse, as a clinician, you're doing so because you truly are passionate about service and serving others. So don't lose sight of that when you are frustrated, you know, um, and um, and in leading because you always want to make sure that you're building others up and encouraging them and providing ways to um, really help foster um, and and grow and provide opportunities. So sometimes that's just with some words of encouragement or creating an opportunity at the table. Um, for others um, or providing challenge opportunities for others to grow. Um, so we always want people to never stop growing, never stop learning. And we want to always be um, service-minded. It's important. So thank you for your thank service. You. 
Thank you. Incredibly important. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I greatly appreciate, again, greatly appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening and appreciative uh, of uh, of this time with them. So thank you. No, thank you. And as for in May, happy nurses week, month. We're going to, yes, we're going to take the whole month. We do. At this point, it's just deserved. <laughs> absolutely absolutely well thank you so very much for your service again and for for the time and this opportunity really appreciate it great thank you so much we have been listening to rear admiral denise hinton uh, she is the deputy surgeon general for the u.s public health services commission Corps. thank you so much and i look forward to bringing you more incredible guests in the future have a great one You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.